Yes. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rock and roll About a Girl is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Let me tell you about Mick Fleetwood, the six foot five drummer who co founded Fleetwood Mac and kept them together for five decades. The slim figure posing with Stevie Nicks on the iconic cover of that band's blockbuster album, Rumors. But this story isn't about Mick or Stevie. This is about Jenny Boyd a demure former model and muse of 1960s London who abandoned that life for a family with Mick. Overshadowed by her older sister and neglected while her rock star husband was off being worshipped on stages around the world, Jenny would have to find her own calling. But it would take two divorces from the same man and again turning her back on the life she'd known. This story is about a girl. Her friend, Dale, thumbed down at the desk next to Jenny's. He's gorgeous, Dale said. She pulled a wire sculpture of a tall, gangly man out of her bed, an effigy of the cute new boy at their school. He's got those long, long legs. And he plays the drums in a group called the Cheneys. They've played support for the Stones, the Yardbirds, everyone. Jenny was less impressed when she first caught sight of Mick Fleetwood, who was sick in bed, just a pale, sweaty face with tangled brown hair poking out from the covers. Dale had brought him some grapes to cheer him up, and Jenny came along to see what the fuss was about. You can have him, Jenny thought. A few days later, Dale and Jenny were at the coffee mill smoking cigarettes and drinking hot chocolate after school. Who should saunter in but Mick and his bandmate Roger, dressed up sharply for a gig that night, matching pink sweaters and black mohair pants. Jenny observed Mick's imposing frame, now reappraising him. Despite his height, 
he exuded a cool, gentle presence. And he looked kind of mysterious, too, with dark eyes hidden behind long, side-parted hair. Though too short to look him in the eye, she still felt a strangely familiar connection with him. Huh, she thought, taken aback. When the boys got up to leave, Mick turned around and invited Jenny and Dale to come to their show at the town hall that night. And then he stepped out the door. That was the beginning of a pattern that would repeat for Jenny over the next two decades. Mick Fleetwood showing up unexpectedly in her life, asking her to join him, and then disappearing before her eyes. That same night, Jenny watched as Mick set up his drums and then strode over and sat next to her. She felt that familiar vibration again. Then she felt something else, too. His foot on top of hers, pushing down as if she were his kick drum pedal. And as though he were playing it, her heart started beating faster. But she had to stay cool. This was Dale's crush. She saw him first. Besides, Jenny was too bloody shy to even know how to properly flirt. For his part, Mick clearly wasn't much of a talker. The two hardly said a word to each other before it was showtime. Jenny danced along the scuffed wood floor while Roger belted out Bo Ditley and Chuck Berry numbers. Though she was, in most parts of her life, so unsure of herself, feeling uninteresting, uncreative. When she danced, she could really open up. Every time she looked up, the guitar player, Phil, was winking and smiling at her from the stage. The attention felt pretty nice, but it's not really the guitar that makes you dance. It's the drums. And as Jenny danced to Mick's rhythm, she could tell he had really found his calling. He wasn't the fanciest drummer, but he hit hard, a look of determination in his eyes, and he had that extra something, that special feel that elevated the music. After that, she'd see him around, and she gleaned what she could about him from their mutual friends. He practiced drums every chance he got, and on any night that he wasn't gigging, he'd be listening to blues and R&B records sitting on someone's carpet, studying every drum fill, getting higher off the little details of the music than from the joints the kids passed around. Jenny wished she had something that drove her in that way. School was school, but she had no idea what there might be beyond that. Mick was able to spare a few moments here and there to throw a little heat at Jenny, modest but unmistakable flirtations. He was a teenage boy, after all. But she would look the other way, for Dale's sake. Instead, she dated the Cheney singer Roger for a year. She got into a routine, going out with Roger, dancing at rock shows, and hanging out with her older sister, Patty. It was all fine, but she felt there had to be something more. Some kind of future with meaning. She had to admit, though, that spending time with Patty was getting pretty interesting. Three years older than Jenny, her sister was already working as a model in London and had begun dating George Harrison, the quiet Beatle, at the height of Beatlemania. 
This was an exciting development for everyone, and in particular, her teenage sister. When George came over to their mother's house for lunch, Jenny thought he was so much smaller and more delicate than he looked in photos. He was funny and kind, too. She could see it in the way he treated their mom. And he was surprisingly deep for a pop star. Their turntable spun the latest R&B record, brought back from America by George, while he, Patty, and Jenny would sit around listening to the music, drinking scotch and soda, and smoking unfiltered cigarettes. One day, George let Jenny try a few puffs of a joint, but she felt no different sitting there while George made funny faces at her. She received no deep ideas to help her decide what to do with herself, as she secretly hoped she would. The Cheneys broke up in 1965, and Roger got a job as a painter. He introduced Jenny to the fashion designers Full and Tuffin after painting their store. They auditioned her as a house model. She thought models had to be statuesque, while she was just plain small. But things were changing, thanks in part to people like Jean Shrimpton and her own sister Patty, who set the pattern for a new swinging London-based fashion world. Jenny had never held any kind of job, let alone modeling, but to her surprise, she was hired. The designers had to make one-off outfits because Jenny was tinier than any of the other models. She sensed herself at the beginning of an unknown adventure. Gone were the drab school clothes and uncomfortable suspender belts and stockings her mother made her wear. Jenny's look, long and straight blonde hair, fringed with bangs, wide eyes, thin frame, was becoming an ideal for young women around the world. Jenny had always admired Patty for her ability to wear what she wanted, not caring what others thought, but looking great anyway. Now she was being told she looked just like her sister. It was the best compliment she could ask for. She was still a bit insecure, but at least she looked confident. Standing at the counter at the full and toughened fashion storefront one afternoon, she looked up to see a familiar lanky figure in a long white cardigan and black flares peering in the window. Mick Fleetwood came inside and they sat listening to records for her entire shift. They were still both painfully shy, but she tried to tell him about a recent modeling trip to New York. Mick was at that time playing in hip London bands with future stars Rod Stewart and Peter Green. It took some time for he and Jenny to warm up to each other, but they finally became real friends. She learned that, like her, he'd also spent part of his childhood in another country, and that both of their fathers had been pilots. She spent her first five years with her own father in Africa. Colin Boyd, known as Jock, was injured in combat over Malta during the war sustaining third-degree burns on his hands and face. But she would barely remember the scarred and hardened man who preferred his girlfriends and his horses to his wife and children. And then he just disappeared for a while, starting a new family, as Jenny would learn many years later. For a time, she was left in a children's home in Africa. Then she moved to England to join her mother, 
along with her mother's surprise new husband and his two boys. The new stepfather, an asshole, would berate her and discipline her with a cane while her mother turned a blind eye. A kindly cook employed by the family noticed that Jenny had a creative side and gave her an acoustic guitar, but her five siblings made her pay for this special treatment, so she never actually learned to play it. She clung to the attention of her sister Patty to make up for the parenting she lacked, desperate to imitate and impress her. The early neglect set her up for a kind of codependency with her sister. But with Patty moving on to a fast-paced celebrity life, Jenny had no one to focus her energies on. Mick Fleetwood soon filled that role. Both of them single and living in London, they began seeing each other off and on. Sometimes they'd be glued to each other, dancing together at clubs and sharing his single bed for weeks. Then he'd forget her, forget to say anything nice when he left for a tour or she left for a modeling gig far away. Each time, that feeling of abandonment from her childhood would swallow her up. Jenny didn't know what she could do to get Mick to tell her how he really felt about her, whether he was serious at all about their relationship. He was so focused on his band that it was nearly all she heard him talk about. He was too reticent, too closed up to talk about emotions, and she was too timid to just ask him. Instead, she'd sit quietly next to him, all the while screaming inside, Do you actually want me? Her feelings had become so strong that she hoped he'd just somehow send her question and say something. But he would or could not. Her career was a good distraction. Modeling took Jenny to places like Amsterdam and Rome. Sometimes she'd meet other guys, somehow always musicians. Everything was about music. While the professional models who trained and studied strutted along with their perfect long legs and dour faces, Jenny, moved by the music, danced her way down the catwalk. She always landed the job and got noticed. In New York, she was booted from a hotel restaurant for wearing a bright red pantsuit rather than a skirt or a dress. Although her crowd, known to the outside as rockers, were pushing the edges of fashion, 1965 was still a pretty conservative place. A competing young subculture, the Mods, wore black and listened to bands like the Small Faces. They hated the long-haired rockers in their brightly colored outfits. In this bizarre cultural feud, Jenny was a target, both for her association with the Beatles and because she was known as a model for rocker fashion. On the street, some mod girls once pushed her to the ground, mocking her as a Beatle lover. But being part of the Beatles circle also got her fan mail. Her picture and address had been printed in a magazine in America, and girls wrote her friendly letters, really just hoping to learn more about George Harrison. She still couldn't imagine getting fan mail just for being herself. And why would she? She wasn't even sure who she was. The question preoccupied her. While Jenny's friends sat in a circle silently passing joints and listening to records, 
she felt hungry for something else. The grass affected her more now that she was used to it. But just getting high wasn't enough. Flipping through a book, a sentence jumped out at her. Life goes on within you and without you. She couldn't get that phrase out of her head. It was centering, oddly comforting, heavy. She felt compelled to pass it on right away to George, her most philosophical friend, a fellow searcher. She knew he'd get it. She was right. He liked it so much it inspired a new song, one that would appear on the next Beatles album. Jenny didn't feel she needed the psychedelic drugs some of her friends were using to expand their consciousness. One experience had made her feel creeped out. Seeing her own face morph into thousands of little ones wasn't fun, and it didn't give her any new ideas. She grappled with the metaphysical while completely sober. She had the urge one day to draw a circle with her finger on the carpet. Sitting there staring at it, things suddenly made sense. Everything in the universe is a circle. Life isn't a straight line. As she sat there considering this new understanding, her whole body buzzed. She wanted to be closer to the source, to join the growing collective consciousness of people who were feeling the world moving forward and together. She saved up her modeling money and followed a friend to San Francisco in 1967, just as the summer of love was beginning. Jenny walked up and down Haight-Ashbury, feeling the spirit as strangers smiled at each other, something that just didn't happen in London. She tried acid again at a Hell's Angels party and attended the Monterey Pop Festival, where she saw Jimi Hendrix light his guitar on fire and felt music changing the world in real time. While in California, she got pretty close to Paul Cantor from the Jefferson Airplane, but a combination of her timidity, compounded by too much grass and the lingering memory of Mick at home, kept her from consummating things. Back in London, George gave her a job managing the Beatles' new Apple Boutique, The building was painted as wildly as the psychedelic clothes inside. It was there that folk flower child Donovan asked her to come with him to model for an album shoot. She had a great time dressing like a fairy and loved talking with him, another deep thinker, sensitive and poetic. Donovan was like a real-life hobbit with his small features and curly hair. On their next meeting, he told her he'd written a song for her called Jennifer Juniper. He played it for her, and she was flattered, but she couldn't look him in the eye afterwards. The song would go on to reach number five on the UK singles chart. Then Mick Jagger told her that he, too, had written a song about her, though he wouldn't tell her which one it was. She didn't get the feeling Jagger was trying to woo her the way Donovan was. But in any case, she never let it go very far with other men. Even though she'd already been on the losing end of Mick Fleetwood's determination to put his band before anything or anyone else, she still felt drawn toward him and wondered if he felt the same. If San Francisco had opened Jenny's mind, being invited by George to join the Beatles at the ashram of the Maharishi Mahesh in India 
felt like the greatest gift she'd ever received. India was magical, a proper spiritual journey. She got to swim in the Ganges and sit on the roof of a bungalow with the Beatles watching them in an inspired state, writing the songs that would become the White Album. She'd been around the world, met incredible people, meditated her consciousness into the cosmos, but God help her, she could not get over the boy she met when she was 15. India had been the pinnacle of an incredible few years, but they left the ashram early. The death of Beatles manager Brian Epstein and rumors of impropriety on the part of the Maharishi cast a pall over the experience. The optimism of the 60s began to fade after that. She brought George and Patty to San Francisco, but the vibe there had changed. It was darker, more desperate. People everywhere were losing themselves in drugs and booze, and everyone seemed to be moving on. Jenny found herself living with a guy in a freezing country house where the only bathroom was the bushes outside. There was a cold, dark pond nearby where they said a woman had been drowned as a witch centuries earlier. Jenny would stare into the black water. She thought she could feel the ancient woman's anguish. It was not a happy time. The arrival of a letter from Mick changed everything. He was finally saying what she needed to hear, that he missed her, that he loved her. He wanted to marry her. She cried when he drove out to rescue her from the frigid house. As they sat in the local pub together, she told him, I accept. After two years of limited sporadic contact, Jenny and Mick Fleetwood moved in together. Mick's friend Andy would be living with them too. Less romantic, but cheaper that way. They were only 21 and weren't even married yet, but she was happy just to be together. Mick, however, seemed to have specific expectations. When she was offered a job at Vogue magazine, Mick told her to turn it down so that she could be at home with him or available to join him on tour when he wanted. After a couple of soul-searching years trying to find herself, she was now Mick's Jenny, and she did as she was told. She had just started feeling loved for the first time in her life and wouldn't risk losing that for anything. The first iteration of Fleetwood Mac was starting to tour the U.S., fronted by virtuoso guitarist Peter Green. Mick called from the road, inviting Jenny to fly out to New Orleans, where they were opening for the Grateful Dead. There, shortly after having some drinks backstage during soundcheck, she realized everything was getting a little... colorful. Owsley Stanley, the dead soundman and amateur chemist, had spiked the drinks with LSD. Jenny watched in horror as Mick's skeleton sat down at the drums and played the entire set. Peter Green soon became more invested in acid than the band, and one day he just wandered off. It almost meant the end of Fleetwood Mac, but Mick spent hours convincing each remaining member to stay. He thought it would help if the entire band lived together. Mick John McVie, Danny Kerwin, and Jeremy Spencer, plus their wives and girlfriends, all moved into a place they called the Kiln House, 
and by the force of mixed determination, started on a new record, followed by another U.S. tour. Jenny was known to enjoy writing poetry and was enlisted to write some lyrics to a few songs, but the band's manager decided it wouldn't be a good look for her to be credited. Mick was credited instead. In June 1970, Mick wandered around outside the Hampshire Civil Registry office as the clerk banged on the glass, telling him to get inside to sign the papers for his own marriage. This had already been delayed two years as he somehow put more and more of his time and energy into Fleetwood Mac. But when Jenny became pregnant, it could wait no longer. And then he was gone again. Jenny had a stressful and complicated birth while he was away, but delivered a healthy girl they called Amelia. While she dreamed of a quiet little cottage for their family, Mick planned another band commune, ensconced in another house of music, this time with some other wives and girlfriends. Jenny still felt herself the odd one out. John McVie's wife, Christine, was a blues keyboardist and singer who was soon drafted into the band, and Jenny just felt intimidated by her. When the band was home, Mick would be in John and Christine's part of the house, talking band business, while Jenny tried to stay invisible and keep the baby quiet down the hall. When she joined him on the road, it was the same. She had to get up early to push Amelia's baby carriage up and down the sidewalk, and then try to keep her from crying and bothering the hungover bandmates in the van on long, bumpy rides. Fleetwood Mac's lineup was still shifting. In 1972, guitarist Bob Weston joined. Of all the band's members, Jenny felt closest to Weston. They aligned in a lot of ways, and he was happy to talk with her about subjects beyond the band. In contrast to Mick, he enjoyed hanging out with her and her baby. With Bob, she felt fun and young rather than the boring mother of the group. The attention was intoxicating, and that was on top of her drinking. She discovered that, unlike pot, which had pushed her further inside herself, alcohol could help her open up, and she started keeping up with the drinking going on around her. Jenny had her second daughter in the spring of 1973, again while Mick was on tour. By September, he was back on the road, and she joined him, now with two kids to keep quiet. Her friendship with Bob and her steady drinking were getting her through it. She still got up far earlier than anyone else to take care of her daughters, but for the moment, things felt better. It was inevitable under the circumstances that her relationship with Weston would develop into an affair, and it did. Mick finally noticed the time they were spending together, the flirtation going on. In their hotel room, he confronted her, and she didn't try to hide the truth. She told Mick she'd been drawn in by the attention and felt horrible guilt. It was her husband she really wanted. Bob had just been a stand-in. Mick was angry but told Jenny he didn't want to split up. The mere fact that he was discussing the relationship with her and expressing his feelings, that was enough for Jenny. A low bar. To make a clean break with Bob, she left the tour and went home. Of course, Mick tried to carry on, 
but there was too much tension. He canceled the rest of the dates and Weston was let go. Meanwhile, in order to meet their financial and legal touring obligations, Fleetwood Mac's manager, claiming he owned the band name, sent an unrelated group of musicians to finish the dates. The real Fleetwood Mac sued. In order to reestablish their name and be closer to their record company, Mick decided they should move to L.A. Jenny packed up the kids and went along. Los Angeles seemed like a fresh start to Ginny Boyd. Warm air, sunshine, friendly people in cowboy hats. It all felt so welcoming. It was there, at the end of 1974, that Mick Fleetwood met Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham. He brought the couple into Fleetwood Mac to replace Bob Weston and departing guitarist and songwriter Bob Welsh. Jenny thought Stevie was so pretty, that witchy look and unique and haunting voice, and could hear magic in the harmony Stevie and Lindsay made with Christine McVie. But with the renewed promise of the band came another new element, one that would help Mick and his bandmates put in even longer hours of songwriting, recording, and touring than ever before. Cocaine started off as something to fuel the music and blow off steam. Then it became their daily medication, a requisite bottle cap full passed out to each member of the touring party backstage between every few songs. Eventually, it was breakfast, lunch, and dinner too. And with cocaine came a new Mick, one that somehow displayed even less emotional range than before, as impossible as that seemed to Jenny. Jenny again found herself slipping away left in the slipstream of band activity, trying to raise a family while keeping up with the incredibly fast-paced lifestyle of not just her husband, but everyone around them. She'd end up at dinners with record execs, unable to eat a bite of her expensive meal, dealing with the worst hangovers of her life. Sometimes, after months of zero communication with Mick, she couldn't stand one more minute of it and would find herself on the verge of a breakdown, screaming and pounding his chest in front of everyone. The on and off breakups that had started before they were even married continued, only now with more intensity. Jenny moved herself and the girls in and out of houses with Mick, whose parents blamed Jenny for their marriage trouble, but they didn't know what their son had become that he didn't even look at her anymore, and that sometimes a woman would answer the phone when she called him on tour. At a low point, his parents decided they should take care of the children themselves because of how unreliable Jenny had become. Eventually, she moved out for good, or so she thought, and Mick filed for divorce. But that didn't last. The breakups and reconciliations were becoming part of this speeding blur that Fleetwood Mac found themselves in after their 1975 self-titled album became a number one hit. The work hours for their next album, Rumors, were somehow even crazier. Everyone felt this album would be huge. 
The recording sessions and subsequent tour made Jenny feel like maybe she'd imagined Mick had ever even existed, until she saw him on the cover of Rolling Stone. Fleetwood and Mac were photographed in bed together, with an apparently naked Mick cuddled against Stevie Nicks in a lacy nightgown. It was a supposedly clever reference to their romantic entanglement, with the McVees divorcing and Buckingham Nicks having split up. Jenny was not amused. The album sold 10 million copies in a month. Its massive success took over their lives, and Mick was simply never home. It was all too much for Jenny. She moved back to England with the girls. She wanted a more stable life for them, a cottage in the country. But in keeping with their destructive cycle, Mick showed up, appearing clean from coke, and convinced her to come back and try again. In order for her to re-enter the U.S., they had to remarry. Within moments of her arrival in Los Angeles, she looked on as Mick got drunk and high and then confessed he'd been having an affair with Stevie Nicks for months. Jenny didn't react. Her brain couldn't process it. She just uprooted her children again for him. Mick said he couldn't choose between her and Stevie. What the fuck? She thought he'd asked her to move back to resume their marriage, but now she realized he just wanted the option. She couldn't breathe. If she'd been in a healthier state of mind, she would have left immediately. But she was still the damaged girl whose parents neglected and abandoned her. She was fixated. And she'd been manipulated into a position where it seemed nearly impossible to leave again and not lose her mind. Her nerves were shot. Her hair began to fall out. There would follow two more years of sort of marriage, sort of friendship, sort of torture. But her body was telling her that her state of constant stress had to end. At 33 years old, she found her way into therapy and began untangling her dependency issues. Things started making a little sense, and she felt stronger. One afternoon in 1982, while Mick lay in a dark hotel room, hungover as always, she decided to give him a final opportunity at a new beginning. But with a dangerous cocaine habit, his band in turmoil, and inching closer to bankruptcy, Mick told her that he's just not a good person to be in a relationship with. Jenny finally agreed. For once, they'd communicated honestly. It took a bad idea rebound marriage to another drummer and a near drowning in Hawaii while on synthetic mushrooms. But Jenny Boyd finally felt called to a purpose of her own. She enrolled in college at 37 to study holistic health. A few more years of hard work and she completed her PhD in psychology. She was inspired to help people like herself who'd been hurt by addiction. She could recognize the psychological factors that contributed to chemical dependency and had seen the resulting damage firsthand. Her own lasting trauma was what had driven her to the edge. This connection was still a new idea in the 80s, 
but she saw its validity. She wanted to connect people to workshops and treatment centers and eventually start them herself. And she did. Although she'd had her own periods of heavy drug and alcohol use, for her that was a byproduct of her true addiction, which had been her dependency on other people, starting with her sister and then Mick, each of whom had their own repressed emotions and substance abuse. Now in control of her own life, there was someone specific she felt driven to help. She sat down with a haggard-looking, emaciated Mick Fleetwood, the father of her daughters, and told him he was going to die. For once, the words just came out. It didn't matter anymore if he got angry at her for saying it or if he didn't get it. The power balance had reversed. She was growing stronger as he was withering. She knew now that this was how loving someone actually worked. You said what had to be said, not what you think might make them love you. By the 1990s, he had cleaned up. Fleetwood Mac endured through more lineup changes, including a successful reunion of the classic Boomers era lineup, and he tours with them still. But this isn't about him. This is about Jenny Boyd, the shy girl who danced her way through the mind-opening world of music and ideas of the 60s, survived the rock star excess of the 70s and 80s, and took charge of her own life so she could help others. This is about a girl. About a Girl is executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sattler for Double Elvis. Scott Janovitz is the show's producer. It was created by Eleanor Wells and hosted by me, Nikki Lynette. This episode was written by Chelsea Erson. For sources used and more information, go to aboutagirlpod.com. The music is composed by Scott Janovitz, Matt Tahaney, and Ryan Spraker. The show is on Instagram at aboutagirlpod, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Nikki Lynette.